Well, good morning. This morning I want to uh, share with you a, a kind of a funny little story that um, has to do with our sermon. But a few years ago, my husband and I bought a new house down Valley, new to us at least. If you remember the Lake Christine fire down in Basalt and that big burn scar up there, well, that's where we bought a house. So... <laughs> So um, we bought it the year after the fire, so we didn't have to endure the fire, but what we did have to endure was removing a lot of burned trees off of our property. And um, so somewhere along the line, uh, we started feeling like a couple of farmers surveying their lost crops between all the dead trees from the fire and the beetle kill, the drought. And so one day this uh, giant delivery arrives at my house, and it turns out my husband uh, had ordered 75 little saplings. Now, never mind that we were going to have to plant each one of these teeny tiny little trees all over our property, um, but they were so tiny that I was afraid they were all going to just be blown over in a big wind. So um, Tim persisted, nonetheless, saying that we were doing our duty. We were stewarding the land for the next generation. So my hope is that somebody will come in the next, you know, 75 or 100 years and really appreciate all the effort that we put into those little trees. It's been a couple of years now, and this winter with all the snow, I'm actually really looking forward to seeing how they did over the winter. You can imagine we lost quite a few, but even if we retained 75, or, you know, 10% of them, maybe... How many would 10% be of 75? Seven and a half? A little half of a tree maybe survived? I don't know. But planting trees is really an endeavor of hope, right? I mean, we do think way ahead to the next generation that will enjoy them. It's almost a defiant hope, right? Like there are deer and droughts and negligent homeowners who are, are you know, at play here. And still we hope that one day, there will be a beautiful tree, or 75 of them, on that property. So we're talking about hope this morning, and I thought the story of hope, of, of just knowing that we do plant trees for the next generation, might help us set the stage a little bit this morning. Hope helps us in challenging times. It's something that we can cling to, that things will get better. And hope actually helps us flourish in this life. Hope is essential to our well-being. It's a delicate balance, of course, accepting that we can't know the future, and yet we still believe that things are going to get better than they are right now. And what's more, our ability to take action and to help bring about the future that we hope for is also critical. So I want to ask you right now, just in your own minds for a moment, how do you describe hope? What are some of the words that come to mind for you when you think about hope? Well, here's one definition. Hope is the belief that the future will be better than the present, along with the belief that you have the power to make it so. The future will be better than the present and the belief that you have the power to make it so. Now, why would hope be tied to our own ability to take action? I mean, I might really be suffering right now. I might be left with no idea at all how to get out of a situation. I might feel completely in over my head. I just hope somebody's going to come in and rescue me 
from the circumstances. But that kind of hope sounds a lot more like wishful thinking, doesn't it? And wishful thinking is kind of this weak cousin to hope. It's passive. It undermines your own agency. And by that, I mean your power to do anything to change your own circumstances. So it's this combination of optimism and personal agency that differentiates hope from its lesser cousins like bravado or wishful thinking. And the good news is, according to a lot of scientific and so social research, that you can practice being more hopeful. One of the ways that they say to do this is by imagining a better future. Just calling to mind a better future. If you can do that, they say, then hope is possible. What we imagine impacts us both emotionally and physically, and it can really jumpstart hope in our bodies and in our minds. And on the flip side, if all we can imagine is a bleak future, and that circumstances are never going to change, that squashes hope. Another thing they say is that hopeful people are realists. You might think sometimes that hopeful people are really just Pollyanna or looking at life through rose-colored glasses, but hope-filled people are actually realists because they understand that there might be obstacles, things may not always go their way, but they're ready for that. They are ready to adjust course if they need to. So they're real, they're realists. Another way they say to practice being more hopeful, by hanging around hopeful people. I love that one because have you ever noticed what a downer it is to spend time with someone who's constantly talking about how the country is doomed because of this or that, how the world is such a mess, and how hopeful people talk about those same things but in a very different light. We don't need to overdo it. We don't need to be always rose-colored glasses all the time. Hopeful people just have a bent toward optimism and hope. So those are just a few of the ways that some researchers say that we can practice being more hopeful. And they're great. They're great tips. It's what the world would say is a way to become more hopeful. But this morning, I'm really interested to know what does God say to us as well. I want to talk about that because the reading this morning is just shining with hope, you might say. Today is what we call Transfiguration Sunday, and it is a powerful reminder of the glory of God. Jesus and three of his disciples go up to the mountaintop, as you heard, and there, away from all the crowds, away from all the people, the religious leaders, etc., Jesus is transfigured, meaning he is transformed before the disciples' very eyes, his face shone like the sun, we're told, and his clothes were dazzling white. Moses and Elijah, who were long dead, a thousand plus years dead, also appeared next to him. And it was just at this moment of glory revealing itself in Jesus that the disciples witnessed it. They witnessed the whole scene with their very eyes. They're overcome by what they see. It's so profound. And it's so profound that Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, Peter tries to suggest that they stay a while. He says, let's just hunker down here, Jesus. He doesn't want to leave. And just then, a voice from a cloud, loud and clear, 
says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And I want to pause here for just a moment because if I'm not mistaken, Jesus hasn't said anything on that mountaintop. What in the world are they supposed to listen to? Well, it might help if we go back just a few verses into the chapter prior. Because this chapter that we just heard, Matthew 17, 1, starts out, six days later, Jesus went up to the mountaintop. So what happened prior to those six days? Well, Jesus had a lot to say in those days prior. First of all, there in chapter 16, at the very end, is when Jesus reveals himself to Peter as the Messiah. You might remember it's when he says to him, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. And then Jesus turns to him and says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Remember, Jesus is talking to Peter, whose name was Simon, but Peter's given him a new name, Peter. Peter the rock. It's on this rock that I will build my church. It's also here that he tells the disciples that he has to go to Jerusalem. He has to endure great suffering at the hands of the religious leaders and that he will be killed, but on the third day he will rise again. And remember, Peter doesn't want to hear that. Peter says, no, Lord, I will never let that happen. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Not because he thinks Peter is the devil for suggesting it, but because Peter is looking at things through human ways, through human eyes. And Jesus is saying, you need to look at this through God's eyes. He says, don't be a stumbling block to what God has planned. So he's saying all of this to the disciples prior to the transfiguration. And so then Jesus immediately tells them to be his followers. They will need to take up their own cross and follow him. In other words, they're going to be persecuted as well just for following him. He's warning them about what is to come, all of the trials that they're going to endure. But he says, follow me anyway. Let me lead you. Because he says, what good is it if you have everything in this life but you miss out on the true meaning of it. Do you really want to trade your soul in that way? And then the last thing he says there, right before the moment of the transfiguration, he says, the Son of Man is coming in all his glory, in all the splendor and glory of God. And he says, some of you here will see it happen. Some of you will be witness to it. You will see the Son of Man, in God's kingdom glory, Jesus says. He's describing that moment of glory to the disciples. And then in the very next sentence at the start of chapter 17, we find him headed up the mountain. Headed up the mountain with the disciples, Peter, James, and John. They were there. They were offered a glimpse of the glory of God's promises. To come. And we're told that at the moment of Jesus' transfiguration, it was so beautiful, as I said, that Peter wanted to drop everything and stay right there, to just prolong that moment of glory a little bit. It was such a beautiful 
and mysterious and hope-filled event. But when Peter starts to talk about that, starts to talk about building monuments there even because it's so monumental, God steps in and says basically, hey, why do you keep trying to make this about human things? This is about God things. This is my son shining with the light of my glory. Listen to him. For your sake and the sake of all people, God says, listen. Listen to what he's been saying. He speaks the truth. See, Jesus knew that things were going to be hard for them. He knew things were going to get ugly. And he wanted to give them a glimmer of his true glory, a glimmer of hope that they could hold on to when they faced massive uncertainty and grief. So after they had this glimpse, he says to them, do not be afraid. Because you can imagine the voice of God might make one a little fearful. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. He says to them, it's time to go back down the mountain and back out into the world. He didn't allow them to stay there, to prolong that moment, not yet. But he knew it would offer them some comfort and hope in the days ahead. Now, I think it would be fair if right now you're thinking to yourself, okay, so great, God gave the disciples the transfiguration, right? God gave them something big to hold on to, maybe beyond what anyone ever has experienced to be in that moment? Of course that instilled hope. But what about me, you might be thinking? What do I have to hold on to in my own uncertainty, fear, anxiety, grief? How does my faith help me be a more hopeful person? Well, we may not have that literal transfiguration of Jesus happening before our very eyes, but we do have a few things. One of them is scripture. We have thousands and thousands of years and thousands of stories that are filled with hope, including this one today. From Genesis, when we hear about the magnificent and sweeping account of God's power to create all the way to the end, of revelation, when God conquers evil and sin and delivers a new heaven and a new earth. All the way, there are stories filled with hope. Scripture has so many invitations to hope. I didn't look it up, but I think the word hope must appear at least dozens and dozens and dozens of times in Scripture. In Isaiah, I'm going to give you just a few. In Isaiah, we, we hear about hope through Isaiah's words, not necessarily the word hope, but you get the intent of this very hopeful message. He says, but those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's hopeful. In Jeremiah, we hear these familiar words. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future and a hope. And in Romans, Paul wrote, May the God of hope fill you with all joy 
and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It could go on and on and on. Those are just a few of my favorites. Another one of my favorites, by the way, is in Zechariah when he calls the people prisoners of hope. I love that. Not prisoners of fear, not prisoners of anxiety, prisoner of hope. And the Psalms, by the way, also are filled with messages of hope. When we look to scripture for these glimmers of God's glory and God's provision, it reminds us that we can trust God. We can trust that the promises made by God are for all of us, that things will get better. Yes, in, this, uh, in the next life, they will get better for sure. But in this life too, in this life as well. Nobody gets out unscathed. We all experience difficulties, but we can trust that God is with us through it all, that hope and trust go hand in hand. Now, a little earlier, I said that our ability to take action also plays into hope. Action is reliant on our trust, right? When we believe that the future will be better than the present and that we have the power to make it so, that's an act of trust, an act of faith. If you're just believing that it's going to get better, but you don't take any action at all, that's wishful thinking. But the story of the transfiguration tells us that action generates that hope that we look for. The disciples got a glimpse of God's glory that day on the mountain. It profoundly affected them, as I know it would all of us. And it, and it does affect us when we have moments where we get a little glimmer of glory. We get a little God moment at times. But Jesus sent them back down the mountain and out into the world. There was an expectation that they would act, that they would go do something with this hope-filled glory they've just experienced. We're not meant to stay on the mountaintop, no matter how divine it is in the moment. We need to take all our hope, all our faith, big or small, and go out into the world. Maybe you are saddled with grief or an unexpected challenge, physical, emotional, spiritual. But my question is, what action can you take that would be one small step in bringing about the hope that you envision? Read scripture, hang out with hopeful people, disengage with the news or social media, and instead do something that lifts you up. Visit with a friend, go for a walk, take in a comedy show, listen to music, pray, Make an appointment to talk to someone else about it. Reach out to that person in your life that you're missing and wishing that you could call, wishing that they would call you. Make that call. And if that's not available to you or if that's not safe, call someone else. Call someone else. Reach out. The bottom line is that each of these things I just described can in turn reveal another glimpse of God. They might provide another God moment for you. Each one in its turn is a step in hope. Real hope comes from building trust in God's glorious promises, believing 
that the future will be better and taking action to make it so. Trust, believe, act. Despite everything that you're experiencing, whatever it is that's in your life right now that you might be going through, the future that God has in store for you really is bright and shining. So hold on to that dazzling light of hope. Amen. And I invite you to just a few moments of silent prayer.